We gon' ride it out until it's over, love Get you what you want and call me the plug Living every day like I already want Gonna I want to uh, present eight names to you and get a one soundbite on each one of these individuals and uh, what you think of them. Let's start with who you consider the best cyclist of all time, Eddie Merckx. What's your soundbite for Eddie Merckx? Well, he was called a cannibal. And I once asked him when I went into his office when he, where he lives in Brussels and said, Eddie, why did you win every race? Because for me, when I telephoned my newspaper in London and said, can I, how much space have I got for this race? And, and uh, they'd say, who won? I'd say, Eddie Merckx won. Oh, not again. Uh, so they would cut me down on space. I mean, they would never say that if it was an English superstar. Anyway, uh, I told Eddie the story. I said, why did you not just sort of lose the odd race? Because the guy rode 1,500 races. He won over 500 of them. One third of the races he won. And he said, I can't win. I can't lose it because my people, they, they go to the races to watch me win. So I must win. I must win. And that's his only answer. He must win. The guy was special. He's the only guy where I interviewed cyclists at the start of classic races and said, who's going to win today? And they'd say, well, if Eddie Merckx wants to win, we can't stop him. France's favorite, Bernardino. Yeah. Bernard was the last of the real patrons of the Tour de France, the guy who could control the racing by his, because they knew he had the legs to finish anybody off who didn't obey. And so if a guy attacked and it wasn't a good time to attack, he would tell a teammate to go and catch him, tell him to get back here and mind his own business. He said, because if he doesn't, he won't finish this Tour de France. And what by that he means, he, you know, would make it so hard for him at some stage of the race, the guy would probably abandon because um, he'd be a young rider, see, not understanding the will of the tour. Uh, Eno was probably the hardest man I've ever known in the sport, possibly apart from Sean Kelly, but he was so tough. Uh, and I remember the striking workers uh, at the bottom of the Col d'Ez in Paris-Nice. And Eno, they were blocking the road. They were demonstrating and using the race as their platform to demonstrate for their problems. Eno just put his head down, put his fist out like that, and went straight for them like a torpedo and smashed his way straight through uh, onto the cold edge. He said, ha. he said, listen, I'm doing my job. I'm a professional, so don't stop me working. And that was his attitude. He was a hard man, a very much a hard man. And still is to this day, he's very doer guy. You go up and see him, he, he'd say, bonjour Bernard. He goes, bonjour, that's it. He didn't see any point in wasting time. I mean, he he criticised the organisers of Paris-Roubaix for saying it's it's ridiculous to ride such a race like that. It's inhumane and nobody should ever ride it. And he rode it once, won it, so he could say those things. That's Bernardino. America's Greg Lamont. America, well, Greg. Greg's a very excitable character shall we say but boy he was soaked in talent from the day he sort of got his junior world title but almost by well by default he disqualified the winner but greg was very without doubt the most talented guy to come out of america i think even though we've had armstrong as well but um greg was very special and when he was shot 
peppered him. Over 200 pellets is what he always says was in his back of his body because his brother-in-law thought he was a turkey and shot him in the bushes. Greg tells me in the story, he said that there was a helicopter flying over going to a, a road accident and that the chopper got the call that there's a, somebody down there just been shot. Uh, and the, the, the pilot made the call, road accident, or the guy had just been shot. He chose Greg. And they told Greg that if this guy had not landed, Greg would have died where he lay. And they saved his life. And Greg's never forgotten that, I don't think. The pellets are still in his heart, all of his linings of his heart, as far as I know. But Greg, um, that's the sign of a man. He went then for 18 months in rehab. And he comes out on the Tour de France and he wins it. And then he won the next one as well. And then, of course, the eight second margin with Fignon was the greatest tour I ever covered. I loved every minute of it. And, uh, and that mere Greg is cold of clue. I've been fishing with him since not long ago. I was in New Zealand with him fishing. We were both doing a gig together. And uh, the casino there gave us their million, million, million dollars catamaran with the captain and, and uh, off we went fishing with the guy who knew where the fish were. I caught the most, but Greg Amon caught the biggest. That's all he was interested in. That's the, that's the difference between a winner and me. Greg was, didn't want the small fish. Well, the small fish were still quite big, but the one he caught was fantastic. And, uh, and that made his day, yeah. Uh, Miguel Indurain. Yeah, do a character. Um, Whereas well, you'd know if Eddie Merckx walked into the room, you'd never know if Miguel walked into the room. Also polite man, absolute gentleman. He turned in my favour because he was boring as heck, as I say, as a rider. He won all the time trials. As it, during his winning career, he never won a road race stage of the Tour de France during his winning period. He won five straight tours. He did win a road race stage before he won the Tour de France. But once he was riding to win the Tour, he only ever won the time trials. And he could go on the time trial. However, uh, during uh, what would be in his sixth Tour de France in a row in 1986, 1996, um, he was well beaten in the mountains. Bjorn Reese was killing him in the mountains. And uh, the race was finishing a stage in Pamplona, which is where he lives. They'd even built a grandstand outside his house on the street because the tour went past his house. And the people were all sat there and he was not in contention anymore. And in fact, he came through in the second group, if I remember right, on the road into Pamplona for the finish of that stage. Here he was now, Eva Arreste, if I remember rightly, and he could have just packed his bags and walk down the street and been home, finished. He was never going to win the tour. He was either ninth or 11th overall. Uh, and that is when everybody realised just what a great man Injurine was. He rode all the way to Paris. He finished the tour in ninth or 11th position. And he went right up there in people's estimation because this guy was a winner in character as well as a winner of Tour de France five times straight. The only guy to have done that. And um, so you got to like him, but I, he, he, was a, he was a guy, you know, he always celebrated his birthday on the tour, July the 19th. So the, the organization always brought him a big birthday cake with one candle on it to the tour village before he had to get on his bike and ride the stage. He blew the candle out. He never ate any of the cake. Uh, it left it for the people in the village. But 
He had to go through the ritual every every year because his birthday is on the same date every year. Did you know that, Steve? <laughs> what about his countryman, Alberto Cantador? Well, another man, I, I first met him in the tour down under. Um, as you know, he had a very serious uh, injury with his head. He had a metal plate in his head and he was just fighting back. And he always remembers that that stage of the tour down under the Australian race in Adelaide. Uh, was his big comeback. He won the stage. He's, if I remember right, I think he was sprinting with Luis Leon Sanchez, but the two Spaniards came down together. And that was that was the announcement that he was back. And that was the story of that tour that year. And of course, he does fall off a lot in many ways, Alberto, but he was, a, he was such a, an exciting rider to commentate on. And he was also well, he was loved by Spanish people because in his hometown, he had a gymnasium named after him. He'd helped people, the kids, try to make progress like he'd done to be a, a top cyclist. And so I had a lot of time for, for Alberto as well, yeah. Similarities between uh, Cantador and uh, Juliana Alaphilippe at all? Uh, um, well, they certainly look pretty similar on the bike. They're all sort of skinny riders and they seem to turn the body inside out when they jump out of the saddle and stuff. The legs look like rubber. Um, he, he was a much better climber, obviously, Contador was than Julian. But Julian, don't be fooled, he can climb when he has to. I like Julian especially, not because I, I dropped him on the climb of the Sierra Nevada on an electric bike, but because uh, the other, I, I did a commercial with him two years ago. Never met a nicer guy to work with. I went up to him and I said, uh, Bonjour Julien. I said, um, I'm Phil Ligg of the company. He said, I know who you are. I said, What? He said, I know who you are. He said, um, You talk about me all the time on television. I said, Well, I'm, I'm very, very impressed and I feel very humble. I said, Now look, we're going to climb the Sierra Nevada, which is a 33 kilometer climb, but of course we only do a kilometer or two of it. And um, I was testing a specialized new prototype electric bike, which was due to be launched in the July of that year, which is two years ago. And Julian was training up there. That's why they'd chosen Julian to come down. Of course, yeah, he rides for specialized team sponsored by specialized. So Julian comes down on his bike with a mechanic in the car. He rode down, the mechanic came in. I said, now look, I'm, I'm exactly almost to the day 50 years older than you. I said, but I'm still gonna bloody beat you. And he laughed. And so we went down the mountain. We must have done seven or eight times up the mountain for the takes, for the cameras, different angles, different commentary. Uh, and of course I dropped him on the climb, but did I drop him? No. He just put on a terrific face of agony and, uh, as he went off in the distance. And I said, I'm sorry, Julian, I can't wait for you. You're clearly in trouble. And I rode off on the electric bike. And uh, they had so much luck specialized on that occasion because when they did launch the bike on the 19th of July, if memory serves me right, 2018, he was in the yellow jersey of the Tour de France when they put the, the commercial to air. How lucky can you get? Um, so I, I just like Julian. He's just, he never says never. Um, even when he was penalized for illegally taking that drink in the tour this year. Um, he was wrong to have taken it, but he didn't, he said, oh, it cost him the yellow jersey. But he said, well, it was a mistake. 
but he didn't say they shouldn't have done that to me. Accepted. It was a mistake. Uh, and he was on the uh, Chris Froome. Yeah. Well, Chris have come from two angles because first of all, I knew Chris when he was never looking likely he'd ever ride in the Tour de France, then might win it four times. Uh, Chris um, brought up in, he's, he's African really. I know he's English, but he's African. He's lived there all his life and he speaks, Paul used to speak to him in Swahili. It's hilarious. And so I used to see Chris racing in the area of Johannesburg because I've been going to South Africa for since 1990. So I'm pretty well known in, in Africa, in South Africa in particular, and that Chris was educated in, in Johannesburg. Then I saw, I was reporting local races for local television and, Paul, and uh, um, Chris was just riding the races locally for a team called Conica Minolta. And it was, it was a good bike rider, but it was never an indication he was going to be a star. But then he moved to Europe and he changed completely. He became a race winner, as we know. Um, and then we saw Chris had the, the rhino on the, extent, on the headset of his bike. And he was a great rhino supporter. So that endeared me to him even more. And we used to talk on the subject of saving the rhinos, which were being and still are persecuted in Africa. And he's, he's just loved. I, I read once that his ambition is to, when it's all over, is to return to Africa and hopefully train the kids to enjoy the life he has led uh, since. And I hope he sticks to that because I'd be the first to support him. Yeah, he's a good, he's a good man, Chris. Uh, I know he gets in some hot water occasionally and he certainly falls off a lot. Uh, but this guy is unbelievably strong. Dave Brailsford will be the first to tell you he's a Jekyll and Hyde character. The meekest, mild, mildest, quietly spoken guy you'll ever meet. Put him on a bike. He'll tear you apart. He'll never, ever slow down. And finally, uh, Lance Armstrong. Lance, well, how long have we got, Steve? Because <laughs> write a book on Lance, as you know. I've, I've enjoyed Lance's company immensely. Um, contrary to everybody, I, I'm no closer to Lance than you are. Nobody gets close to Lance. Um, and I, I enjoyed being given the jobs to emcee all of his gigs, which involve raising money for cancer. I met some of the most amazing people who were stricken by the disease and uh, were probably long since dead because of it. And I used, what I used to do, first of all, I got a letter just before the start of the Tour de France in 2003. And it was from a guy in Canada called Joe, Joe, Joe Dutton, his name. He said, Phil, um, we've not met, but it went something like, um, Lance, Lance is doing a gig over here. Um, and I'm the organizer and we're raising money for his cancer charity. And Lance has said he wants you to do the mic work. And I thought, yeah, right. Lance would never have said that. I wasn't even, I never talked to Lance one day till the next. So I wrote back and I was just leaving for the Tour de France. And I just wrote to Joe and I said, oh, September, Joe, it's a bad time of year for me. I'm coming off the tour and stuff. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll say no. And that was the letter, email I sent to Joe Dutton. Day five of the Tour de France, finishing Amiens. And uh, Armstrong had just battered the, the Colombians on the cobblestones because uh, he, knew he, he knew he could get them in trouble on the cobblestones where he might not get them in trouble in the mountains. So he got time on them over the flat roads of the hell of the north. Anyway, 
Paul and I walking through the courtyard of this hotel we were staying in, and we didn't know that the team was staying in the same hotel, and suddenly a door burst open from this private area wing of the hotel, and Lance ran out across the cobbles. Hey, hey! I thought, oh, God, he must have heard some of my commentary. He's going to hit me. And um, he came screaming up. He goes, hey, never says hello. Lance, to this day, never comes up and says, hello, how are you going? He just said, hey, uh, do you get a letter? Off an email off uh, off Joe Dutton about a ride in Canada. I said, yeah. I said, I, I turned it down because um, he said that uh, you wanted me to go. I do. He said, oh, God. I said, well, I don't know. He said, listen, man, this guy is the most brilliant organiser. We raise so much money for the cancer, um, and I want you there. Get back on it. Let me know by the end of the tour if you're coming or not. I said, okay, Lance, well... I'll dig down my in, my bin and see if I can find the, the email and I'll send Joe a letter. Which I did join the tour and said, Joe, seems to have made a mistake, I'm in. And Joe came back and said, delighted, we'll arrange the trip. Okay. At the end of the I never saw Lance again from stage five till the end of the tour on stage 21 when he was on the podium having won the Tour de France. And um, he suddenly shouts across from the podium where he's standing in the middle of the Champs-Élysées and he's Mario Jean saying, hey, are you coming to Canada or what? I said, yes, I am. He said, good, and stepped off the podium. That was the last conversation I had till we went to Canada. And that was a terrific trip. We raised two and a half million dollars. That was a big deal. And I met some great people from the, from the um, surgeons responsible for the cancer operations to, to the sufferers. And I'll very quickly tell you another story because there was a kid came to this event he was about 15, I don't think he was even 16. And he sat, at, when we had the dinner on the first night, we had small tables of about 10 people and this kid was on the table with me and Lance. And Lance looked at him, he goes, um, hey kid, how'd you get to sit on my table? And the kid said, uh, he came from the Cook Islands, which is the opposite side of the world to Calgary. It's a long, long way away. And so he said, um, well, I sold your armbands because the deal was you had to pay $20,000 to be on the table and the kid was on his table. And, and so Lance said, um, hmm, how many did you sell? He said, I sold 9,000 at a dollar a go. So I said, down the market in, on the Cook's Island in, uh, on a Saturday morning. Dad just goes, well, that's not enough money, is it? 9,000 bucks, you've got to pay 20 to get here. And the kid just looked up and said, yes. He said, my granddad said that uh, whatever I was short, he would pay the balance. And he said, uh, so he paid the 11,000 bucks extra. And so my granddad came to see me off from the airport. Oh, yeah. And just as I was stepping on the plane, my granddad said he was dying of cancer. Lance just choked. He never spoke for ages. He just sat at the table and carried on eating. Lance is not the one man to apologize or say anything like that. So he just stopped the conversation and they went a bit quiet. Now I was drawing the raffle for a bike which Lance had brought from Trek, a fantastic Trek Madon. And that was the prize for the guys who were paying lots of bucks for this raffle. And uh, I would go up on stage to draw the winner and as I get up on the mic and just pull in the mic straight, as my Lance is walking from the table to me, he goes, hey, 
And he looked, I said, I put the mic away. He said, what do you want, Lance? He says, the kid gets the bike. So what? The kid gets the bike. So what's his number? <laughs> I didn't know. Look, I had to know a number to call out. Anyway, I, we worked it out. The kid got the bike and he rode it the next day on the ride with us and he finished in the group with Lance. I didn't, he did. Um, and that's the other side of Lance. That's the side you don't see. And some of those people we spoke to, surgeons, one guy, we gave the coloured jersey of the Tour de France, the guy, people who'd raised the most money. The guy that wore yellow had paid and raised 75,000 bucks to be there. He got the yellow jersey to ride in and he became a friend of ours too. In the, after that, he became a really good guy. I met him a lot. Yeah, so that's, that's Lance for you. I admire him a lot. There's a story broken in the last couple of days, Johan Brunil saying that Lance would have won his tours with or without drugs. And you know, I think he was right. I believe Lance was an incredible talent. The figures he pushed out uh, when he was doing his, his checks at VO2 max was unbelievable. And, uh, and the way he beat cancer shows that the, the determination of the man. And I know that Brunil had to pull his riders from training with Lance because they'd be too tired to race for Lance in the bike races. They would ride, for example, on one occasion, uh, and this is Johan telling me years ago, the team rode, rode up Alpe d'Huez. The team stopped at the top and went to the hotel. Lance went back down the bottom and climbed Alpe d'Huez again. That was the difference. And he stacked the miles in. And uh, he knew what was going on, of course. Everybody was taking drugs. The fact was basically that Lance was not a particularly nice character. He made a lot of enemies in the, in the official world. The doping agencies, uh, they were all out to nail him. And I'm not sorry they did because he was clearly cheating, but he wasn't the only one. That's the point. But Lance made himself very unpopular with officialdom. And they wanted him and they wanted him big time. And they were prepared to take any, any risk to get him. You know, wrap on the knuckles for all the team, but all they wanted was Lance. Let's uh, pivot to loves of your life. We've talked already about Trish, your wife. <laughs> We've talked certainly about cycling and, and the phenomenal career you've had there. Uh, a couple other things uh, specifically I want to talk about. Wine first, and secondly, your love of animals, your start as a zookeeper, and then specifically about the Helping Rhinos campaign and, and what you're doing in South Africa. Well, the wine, of course, I've, I think I've been to every winery in the world because winery, wine making always seems very close to cycle racing and I finish up being invited, especially in California uh, with all the great vineyards and especially in the tour down under because you have the Napa Valley and uh, not the Napa Valley, the, um, the McLaren Vale and all the great places, the Barossa Valley down in South Australia. Um, both countries make great wine. So, and in France, I've, I've been a guest of the Morton Chandon the Contessa of Epinay, I've been to a chateau there uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, in the 70s, in fact. She's long since gone now because she was pretty old then. But um, I remember at nearly midnight, uh, I'd, I was talking about animals. And she said to me, like, Mr. Legang, see, you, you're very interesting, aren't you? Her English was impeccable. The previous night, she was in Balmoral Castle in Scotland having dinner with Princess Margaret. And she came back from Balmoral to, into, to just entertain me. And when I arrived with David Saunders, it happened. Uh, she says, look, I've no idea why, why you're here, but I do know my husband invited you, but sadly he's not here, so you've got me. 
and that's how the dinner party started. There was, uh, I, I was talking fish. And by midnight, I was in the grounds of the chateau looking at fish under spotlights to try and explain. To, she wanted me to work out why they were dying. Was a, after a few glasses of the most fantastic wine, it was lucky I didn't fall in. I had a suit on as well, but I had a look at the fish for her. So that was that was a, a little wine story. But um, as far as uh, what, what was the other thing you asked me, Steve, about uh, the rhinos, you know, yes, the rhinos. and the love of rhinos. And, well, and uh, you're right. I started out life as a zookeeper and I realized I was always going to be a zookeeper. Not there's anything wrong with zookeeping. But I wanted to be a zoologist and that wasn't going to work out. And so I decided to follow my course of being a cyclist. And at the same time, I was an accountant. And um, so I left the zookeeping, but animals were and always have been my first love. There's no question about it. I'm an avid bird watcher, but I don't call myself a twitcher. The birds have to come to me. I don't go looking for them. And and of course, I got drawn in. I bought a, a beautiful property with Trish in the edge of the Kruger Park in South Africa. The last fence is nine, kil nine kilometers, eight mile, five miles or so. Uh, I always call it the last fence because after that, it's, there's no fences. You go to Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, Mozambique, Namibia. That's the, the, the countries that form the rim of the north of South Africa. And there's no more fences. And so... It's a wild place. And then I found I hadn't bought a holiday home. I'd bought a house in a war zone because of the, the poachers who are heavily armed guys, AK-47s, shooting the rhinos, taking the horn off and making money. And so I became very embroiled with that because, you know, 10 years ago, there were 12 and a half, 13,000 rhinos left in Africa. It's now down to about three. But I think, and I say with trepidation, we are turning the corner now. We've, we've had a great time where I live. We've, we've lost one rhino so far this year. We've almost got to a full year with no casualties at all. So I think we're winning, but it's costing a lot of money. So most things I do, I raise money for rhinos. Uh, I do things for the bird life of South Africa, because I'm a patron of bird life South Africa on the cycling side. And so it's called Fast and Featherless. So we get guys on mountain bikes and we take them into the safari area. We go bird watching and give talks on birds and bikes. And, and the money they've paid goes to the, uh, back to the uh, BirdLife South Africa in Johannesburg for research and, and training young black people to be rangers and, and learn to appreciate what they have in Africa, which is the most beautiful country in the world. And yeah, so... And just at the moment, of course, I'm in the progress with Trish of organising a mountain bike safari type thing in South Africa, which will be next August. I'm hoping that COVID will have gone away. Uh, it's for only for 16 people, which there's only eight places left already. And that is um, that will be all expenses paid. Once, you, once you've paid your money up front, there won't be another penny spent. You'll spend the next five days with, with me and with Trish on the storytelling and the rangers will take you and show you the animals. Um, if you want to, you can ride the mountain bike with us uh, and we'll get to meet the local people and you'll learn to sprint because the lions will chase you. And you'll have a good time. That'd be great. <laughs> and of course, sure. the last one is the Paul Showing Project. I can see you're going to ask me that question, aren't you? Yeah, well, <laughs> the Paul Showing Project is, is something... Paul died December the 2nd. 
2018. It's indelibly printed on my life, on my mind. I can see it just right now. Paul was African by everything apart from his colour. And we both came into it totally differently, but our lives seem to always follow each other. Um, I love Africa too, he loves Africa, but we never came in with the same idea. We just turned up in Africa together. Paul was brought up in Africa, in northern, in uh, eastern Africa, Uganda and Kenya. And so uh, when Paul passed away, we, we, we just couldn't let him slip away without remembering him. So it's taken a little while, but in the last few, few uh, weeks, we've got a, a project. And it's called the Paul Show in Project.com. That's the website. Website's starting to look like a website now. It's been a tough one. Um, and what we do is we raise money as best we can, or you can donate. Press the donate button. We'll get your money. And of course, I'm the chairman of the board. Catherine Sherwin, Paul's wife, is, is on the board with me. And we've got other people uh, who have got great individual talents, many of them drawn from the cycle racism that speak particularly from uh, uh, having met them on the tour of California. And we started now to bring money in. Road idea have been great for us with the wristbands because we're great supporters of the wristband. I think it's the most brilliant idea. And uh, we've, they, we've made some money out of the sale of wristbands and that money's in the coffers now. And in the last uh, week, we've approved uh, some money to go back to Kenya one is going to help the young women, the girls who are still kids, because they're very badly treated in Uganda. Uh, the elders don't really want them to be educated. They want to put them down the gold mines and in atrocious conditions. Well, there's a lady there called Florence who runs a school and they go in there for three months at a time to be properly educated. And so we've given her some money. Paul would have loved that because he loved the Ugandan people. And the other one is, there's a Paul show in classic bicycle road race, which started last year. And, uh, and it's off again in two weeks time in Uganda. And um, when we give them some money, so that race will be sure to be taking place again. We haven't got a lot of money yet, let's face it. But we're hoping that as the years progress, we'll think of ideas and people will donate because the when Paul sadly passed away and we organised a memorial service for him in Manchester here in England, in the Manchester Cathedral, which is one of the nicest cathedrals in Britain, we filled the place. All the Tour de France organisation turned up. Uh, all Paul's ex-riders, pros, all came from Europe. And, and, his pro, and the kids he used to race with before he went to be a pro in Europe, they all came. So there's no doubt in my mind that they will happily help Paul fulfill his ideals. Um, and so that's the Paul Sharing Product uh, Project.com. Those are great programs to get behind, Phil. And I think uh, we'll certainly well, encourage all, 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 yeah, definitely in, in, encourage the viewers of, of this podcast. And well, they're very welcome. I make no apology for asking for money in this case, because I know, um, and we don't just send them the money and let them get on with it. We know Africans too. You've got to watch them. And so we will follow the projects through to the finish with the money we give for sure. So in 1943, it's a great year by <laughs> British standards. Mick, ja Mick Jagger was born, George mm. Harrison from your uh, native Liverpool, uh, Ben Kingsley, uh, 
Priscilla Priscilla Black, the singer, which probably if you're outside of Great Britain, you don't know, but Priscilla White. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, unbelievable talent, including uh, so you hold pretty good company uh, by British standards. Anybody born in Liverpool in the 40s meant that they hit their their young age to enjoy themselves in the 60s. And I did just that. The Beatles came through late 50s in the cavern. And I went to the cavern, queued outside, went inside. It was a dungeon. It was dingy. You couldn't see. They had rickety chairs that nobody sat on. You hid behind posts because it was holding the roof up of the building above them. And there was the, they were called the quarrymen for first off. And then they became the Beatles. And uh, they became the most iconic group the world's ever known. And the comedians were ten a penny. Well, a Liverpoolian person is funny. That's full stop. Um, people think I'm funny occasionally, and I got the same humour as Sherwin. And we used to say things to each other, like, for example, um, I've got this documentary coming out at the moment on, on my life, and one of the things is, he's absolutely, I go into the comedy box, Paul's already in there, the noise from his music, and I hate his music, was blurting out. I said, Paul, is there any chance you can turn that down? And he, he takes his head, and he goes, what? I can't hear, the music's too loud. As Paul replying to my question, and I just laugh and take my coat off, as you'll see in the show. But we have the same humour as of somebody from Liverpool. They were brilliant, even the bike riders, even the bike. When I stopped cycling, uh, when I was, uh, uh, I stopped cycling properly, but I was still told I had to ride the big races by the magazine I worked for, otherwise I'd be sacked. And I wasn't as fit. And so I used to race back up in Liverpool, which is, I, I was now working in London. And I would get in a breakaway, a big race. These guys were riding for England. They were top riders. And they, I remember on one occasion, this is also mentioned in the film, um, a guy called Pete Matthews, British champion. He, he used to uh, he said things like, um, does this whistling put you off? Because we'd be climbing a hill and he'd be whistling. And I, I, I said, no, Pete, I was quite enjoying it, really. Oh, I won't do it then, you see, because that's the mentality of a Liverpudlian. But then one day in this bike race, I was in a breakaway. I couldn't work with these guys that are flying. And I'm no like their level anymore. And so I was sat at the back of the break and guys were coming back saying, hey, get to the front, do some work, stop hanging in here. And then Pete would take over because he was a respected guy in the peloton. He'd say, leave him alone. Just leave him alone. He's, he's got a typewriter in his back pocket and he's going to write a story of the race. So just leave him where he is. It's all right. They left me alone. <laughs> so a couple couple final questions what would young phil leggett ask phil leggett now what what one question young phil leggett saying, well it happens with the young kids i meet around the world saying they, they tell me they're going to be world champions so maybe the young phil leggett would say i'm going to be a bike rider and i'm going to be a world champion to which my response is well i think that's a very very good ambition to have and you may not be a world champion, but you will certainly have a great time trying to be a world champion and you'd be a very much better man from it. And that's what I would tell young Phil to go out and do, I think. Um, and follow your nose. I always follow my nose. I didn't ponder. And to this day, I've never argued contracts offered me by television or anybody. And I've never had an agent who would have driven me crazy saying, you. You only can do this, you can only do that. And they take 20% of your money or something. And uh, so the TV used to send me the contracts 
and I would just silence anybody. I never queried the money saying, this is all you can pay me. You know, because every year television says budgets are tight. It'll be better next year, but it never has been. And, but that's life. I mean, I, I've always followed my nose and it's never, ever let me down. And that's, where, that's as they say, that's where I am today. <laughs> and many would say, if we took a ballot, thousand viewers, they'd say, is there another Phil Liggett somewhere on the horizon for American television? What do you say? Um, oh, now you're asking me now to lose friends, I think. Um, oh, I'm, I'm just saying it's a, uh, it's almost rhetorical. I think in the, in the, in the eyes of many American viewers, and this is an ultimate compliment to Phil Liggett, uh, they would say you're irreplaceable. Um, well, and they do, uh, I'm very flattered because I I've often looked in the, in the mirror and thought, trying to see what people have seen in me. And I find that very difficult to say, what the hell did they see me? Um, and when I work with Paul, we gelled and we threw off each other. And we said things we had no intention of saying when we went on air, because we never planned anything. Um, so we were a good duo, that's for sure. I'm enjoying working with the current commentators at NBC. They're good guys and they know their sport and they know the contacts and everything. Um, but they're American. And I think the Americans like the fact that I'm British. Um, I say Maryland, you know, not Maryland, whatever you say. And uh, David Michaels used to say, oh, I'll leave him alone. He's put the British filter on. That was Michael's favorite saying. Um, I'm just spontaneous. Uh, and because of it, sometimes I do make mistakes, which you may have noticed, but by, I, I want to think I'm more of an entertainer than a cycling commentator. And so I always used to say to Paul, now look, if you do make a mistake, don't apologize. What do you mean? I said, well, 90% of those people will not have heard you make that mistake. And so if you apologize, that 90% will say, what did he say? He said, don't say anything. Okay, and, and Paul stuck with that. Or oh, did, stuck with it, yeah. Now, I don't know. Mm. Final question. And anybody who's been around you in the US knows it's like a Pied Piper, because there's a lot of people following you for sure. Uh, so final question here. There's a book of ligatisms out there that has been written. It's a, it's a real book. It is. Um, so, what's your favorite ligatism? Oh my God. And can you say that ligatism? And if not, a saying that everybody can hear is the voice of cycling. Well, I didn't call them ligatisms, but other people did. And it stuck, of course, like the voice of cycling stuck when a commentator called me the voice of cycling, um, which is the name of the documentary on me. It's called The Voice of Cycling. And I, I, I just, when I go to the stand, I do not go with a book of lines to try and work in. But I do know that the viewers have got the Phil and Paul bingo card out to cross off the, the phrases if we say them and see who gets a line up first. Um, I've seen it on the internet. But I just make them up. I look at the picture, I see something. I remember writing once uh, when I was working for CBS and I saw the long line of cyclists crashing over the cobblestones on the straight stretch of bad road in in Paddy Roubaix. And I just, the line just fell out. Uh, the riders are crossing this roller coaster of pain. And of course, everybody starts making, well, gee, a roller coaster of pain. Well, that's what it seemed like to me. So I wasn't trying to be, think of a special line or anything. And to this day, I 
sometimes they come out, but the ones that stuck, uh, which I've always liked, I mean, and always when I speak at dinners, they mention it, is Dancing on the Pedals, um, because that's what it, and, and it was attached to Alberto Contador. And you look at that guy climbing a mountain, or Marco Pantani, they were dancing on those pedals. That's what they were doing. And, uh, and I, it just was a natural thing to say. But I don't walk to the TV monitor with any pre-played uh, ligatisms in my mind whatsoever at all. It's, it's just the way it comes out. And one that was pulled and is always attributed to me, and it was never mine, was Suitcase of Courage. That was Paul's. And I feel very bad every time I see somebody saying it's my phrase, because uh, no, that was a that was down to Sherwin, that one. Yeah, I like that Suitcase of Courage. It was a good one. I wish I'd thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Phil, it's uh, been fantastic. It's been entertaining. Uh, it's been insightful as usual. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time here for the outer line and perspectives on pro cycling. We gonna ride it out until it's over, love. Get you what you want and call me the plug. Living every day like I already want. Gone.